people want to work for companies that they're proud to say they work for. They want to work for companies that align with their values, that align with the things that are important to them. And they don't want to work for companies who they believe their objectives or um, culture uh, is misaligned with them. Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode kicks off our third annual month of August focus on climate change in the built environment. Today's interview, recorded on June 29th, is a conversation with Brad Doxer, who with his wife Debbie lead a company called GreenGen. In two weeks, I'll be interviewing together two heads of sustainability and ESG, both at global investment firms, Carolyn Johns from Pembroke and Jess Bissey from AEW. As a recruiter, I think all the time about what combination of experience and attributes makes a special person special and built for what they do. For me, Brad's story combines three themes which together make him an important person for our industry's engagement in climate. First, Brad's a no-nonsense real estate investor with investment discipline drilled into him at JMB which was arguably the most important progenitor company in the institutional real estate business, his dad's firm, Crimmy May, and then Starwood, Barry and Brad had worked together at JMB, and then McFarlane. He comes by the real estate investment discipline with dog years at those firms. Second, Brad's a pretty amazing people connector, something I understand deeply in my business. If you listen to the tail end of this episode, you'll hear the story of never underestimate the value of saying hello to a stranger, which got me and Brad connected years ago. I also recommend that you listen to the podcast interview that Brad did a few months ago with our friend John Coe on his Icons of DC Area Real Estate podcast, where he drills much deeper into Brad's background, and you'll get an even deeper sense of Brad's connectivity gene. And third and most important to the story, Brad and Debbie saw the opportunity, the thesis that you can make a return on this stuff, and the imperative to jump into the climate challenge for real estate. I love this conversation with Brad because, as I suggested with the three themes, particularly as a recruiter, I think that impactful people are all about their whole self. As a recruiter, the second question I ask in every interview after please give me context for why we're talking, is where did you grow up and what did your parents do? That question might not be PC these days, but it's so often the keys to the kingdom because people will start telling their truths from these questions. Many interviewers go right to the present job and responsibilities, but I want to know their journey, their drivers. I want to understand their context to understand the person they've become. Brad found his life's work mid-career, as did I, and became an important leader in our industry by pulling these things together. I love that part of this story. The other part of the story, which we're telling in this sub-series on Leading Voices started two years ago, is the societal and business imperative of our industries jumping into climate change. So this is episode five in the series, and we will keep going. And we're hoping at ZRG to play our role in the climate and real estate mandate by helping companies build out their leadership in sustainability, what we know will be an increasingly staffed role within the real estate space. Leadership capability and embedding carbon thinking across the real estate organization is our industry's mandate, which again we know will be a big part of what we're all going to be doing going forward. 
And as you'll hear on this and the next episode, as an industry, we're still early days on this journey on climate responsibility. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch about how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Brad. Brad Doxer, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. You and I have talked about this for three or four years now, and we're finally doing it. Um, as we've discussed, every August we have two episodes on climate change and real estate, and it's August primarily because I live in Sonoma County where we have heat, we have the need for air conditioning, and we have fire. So climate change comes right into my face as a risk and something I really care about, but we do across the board in the real estate business. We have a lot to talk about today, a lot of windows into which through which to enter the discussion. So we're going to try to hit all of them in a little bit more than an hour. So we have a lot to talk about. Terrific. No, super happy to be here, Matt. And as you said, we've talked about this for a long time. In the past, I've given you ideas of people to be on the show. And I was happy to have you turn it around this year and say, how about having you on the show? Perfect. Well, here we go. So Brad, why don't you introduce yourself briefly and Green Chen and what it is that you do and what the business is, just as an overview, and then we'll talk about all the subjects. Sure. I'm Brad Doxer, and I'm the founder, or the co-founder and CEO of Green Generation. We're a Washington, D.C.-based global sustainability firm that helps the world's leading investors and governments transition to a low-carbon future. And what that means is we're really working with people to both develop strategies, but particularly execute those strategies at the portfolio, enterprise, and asset level to help people basically get ready for um, this tidal wave of change that's coming you know, from climate, from sustainability, ESG, if we want to use that term, uh, but really help them advance to what the world is going to be tomorrow and not what the world is today. Fair deal. And you do that within the with a focus on the built environment, not a focus on many of the subjects that we read about in the newspaper relating to climate change. It's focused on what I'll call our business. Yeah. And, you know, I think we have a fairly broad view of what the built environment means. The majority of our work is with commercial real estate. So, you know, the leading global investors and REITs around the world. We also work with uh, leading private equity investors uh, as well as governments. Uh, I think we have a fairly broad um, idea or definition of the built environment. We've done projects that have ranged from office buildings and hotels and um, all the way to manufacturing and industrial we even done projects for the U.S. government that look like the U.S.-Mexico border, so no physical space, but lighting. Uh, we've worked for the Forest Service in California, Oregon, and Washington. We use the term structures loosely because it's, it could be a 20,000-square-foot building. It could be a 500-square-foot uh, shed that is holding or um, storing equipment. Uh -huh. And your role is one of consultant and advisor to help them think through their strategy approach to the problem. Kind of talk a little bit about that. You're not manufacturing stuff. 
We are not. We are primarily operating as an integrator of technologies. The interesting thing about the business that we've built is if you think about the journey to net zero, low carbon future, there's both the need for a strategy and then there's a need to execute the strategy. Mm -hmm. Historically, the focus has been on developing the strategy. And the vast majority of, I think, uh, market or industry participants operate in the strategic side. They're developing strategy for people. They're telling them what to do. They're telling them what to articulate to people. There's a much smaller set of people, including green generation, that live on the other side, which is the execution side. Um, Many of our clients, we actually are developing a strategy for them around climate and sustainability. Many of them come with a strategy that either somebody else has developed or that they've developed themselves. But in all cases, we're actually executing. And the interesting thing about that and the important point to make is that five years ago, the focus was on, do you have a strategy? Investors wanted to know, stakeholders wanted to know, tenants wanted to know, boards wanted to know. Today, that has shifted from a conversation around, do you have a strategy, to a conversation around actually executing. Have you executed the strategy? What are you doing? You say you're going to be reduce your carbon by 50% by 2030. What do you do in 2022? What have you done in the last six months? What does the next six months look like? We've moved from a world of uh, what to do to one of, did you do it? Um, and I think that's a really important shift uh, because now it's really about action and execution uh, and not talk. It, it's interesting. I'm guessing before they did strategy, they said, oh, let's get someone to kind of help us with this. We'll put some solar roofs on. So it might have actually started with low-level tactics, but not a broad strategy. Just, hey, let's get some data points to say we're doing something. Then strategy, now it's all about, okay, let's get it together. Well, and, and I think within the tactical piece, there's been sort of an evolution. A lot of the groups that we work with have done something, or they've done a lot of things in different places. They've done solar over here. They've done lighting somewhere else. They've done controls. They've done building envelope. What they haven't done is they haven't embedded in, they have not embedded sustainability into the enterprise. They have not embedded it organizationally. Um, so that it becomes just a fundamental part of what they do from when they're buying a building to when they're designing it, when they're building it, when they're financing it, when they're owning it, when they're selling it. And a lot of this is about taking these ad hoc measures and basically making them, institutionalizing them, if you will, so that there's a playbook so that every time they buy something, they do X. Every time they own it, they do Y. Every time they build out the tenant space, they do something else. And that's the difference between a tactical program and a strategic program, making sure that all these elements are considered every single time. And that's really hard because that's not only about the technology um, but it's also about changing human behavior. There's a cognitive element, too. To how do we get people to change fundamentally what they do and how they think about things? The playbook for people historically has not been around sustainability or ESG or climate because that's not what asset managers did. That's not what leasing people did. It's not what the people who finance buildings did or finance construction or the construction firms. But we sit in a much different world than the one that we were in just a few years ago. Uh -huh. And does that mean... In organizations, the concept of a chief sustainability officer or a role like that, someone who owns it across the enterprise is a critical element to getting there? We think so. And I think the other part of it is when we first start talking to any company, one of the first questions we ask the 
counterpart, if you will, whether it's a chief sustainability officer or head of asset management, we want to know where they sit. Who do they report to? Do they report to the board, to the CEO? Some organizations report directly, people report directly to the CEO. Others are part of an asset management team. Some of them have multiple hats. They are on the development team one day. They do ESG on Wednesdays. That tells us a lot about the priorities of a company and where they see sustainability fit. We do have a, uh, an abiding sort of belief that climate is profitable. And so we prefer when we see groups having uh, ESG or climate sustainability embedded into a, a financial part of the firm, because we truly believe that if you do this right, it drives a financial outcome, but it also drives the climate outcome. Yeah. If it's a layer over, look, real estate is very transactionally oriented and operationally oriented at the same time. We love the transactions. They're fun. They're sexy. It, what, it's what moves the needle, but the needle stays up high because we're operating well. And on both sides of that equation, this needs to be embedded within an organization. But the person better be conversant in those drivers of transaction or else they won't be taken seriously. You know, it's a really good point because I think when we came to this 13 years ago, I'd love to tell you that we had a vision of how the world would change and it would, you know, be focused on net zero and carbon and greenhouse gases. We didn't have that. Came to it out of the great financial crisis around the idea that top lines and revenues were collapsing. And we basically, like many people, rediscovered the bottom half of the income statement where the expenses live. And when we did that, we had this aha moment that energy was much bigger than we realized. Mm -hmm. It was controllable, which today, sitting in 2023, that seems very obvious to people. Um, 13, 14 years ago, the idea that um, utilities were controllable was not an obvious thing. We generally just took them as a given. We just paid the bill. We didn't think much about reducing them. Uh, and technology become much more powerful. There was an opportunity to integrate technology in the built environment, drive your OPEX down, your EBITDA would go up. And if you did it right, you'd also get this co-benefit of sustainability or resiliency. Um, but there was nobody really doing it the way we thought. And I think what we've come to understand with hindsight is that the energy piece is not the unique piece. It's that we integrate the energy expertise, including you know engineers of all sorts of different disciplines and architects, with a keen understanding of real estate capital markets and technology. So it's not just that we can save you $100,000 of your building, but it's then what's the lease structure look like? What how do the expenses get reimbursed? What's your cap rate? What's your capital stack look like? What's your hold period? And to your point, the ability to not just have the energy conversation, but contextualize it in a real estate or an investment sort of approach is quite unusual. Partly because I don't think you know many people would ever consider leaving real estate private equity to start a firm like this. But I did. did. Debbie, so that's where we that's where we are. Okay, we're going to come back to your origin story. And one other question about your introductory comment, which was, let's plan for what's inevitable five or 10 years out. And I love to look at, okay, what do I know is 90% likely to be true in five or 10 years? And then how can I behave, invest, recruit, live the life so that when that happens, it'll turn out well? And I think there's little question about the inevitability that climate is going to be a headline and something that has to be solved. But there's still people questioning this or thinking it's purely political, which it isn't. Any comment about that kind of long-term and future thinking perspective? A, a couple of thoughts. One, 
while I don't particularly think that the question of why the climate is changing is unknown. I think the, there's a consensus around why it's changing. Human activity is changing. I can't imagine there's any dispute that the climate is changing. You know, there's a small sliver of disagreement about why, but why doesn't really matter. If we know the problem is happening, then there's a profitability, there's a return on it associated with actually mitigating that change. Um, the why may steer you toward in one direction or another as to what you do, but there ought not to be any question that the climate is changing at this point. We see that every day with the levels of lakes, of rivers, um, temperatures, you know, just this week, we're seeing extreme temperatures in the Southwest and in Mexico with deaths associated with that. We're seeing the smoke um, surrounding the East Coast, particularly where I'm sitting today, I'm, you know, have the smell of smoke coming from Canada uh, from wildfires. So, you know, there should be no question that it's happening. It's a shame, I think, at some basic level that it's become politicized. That really, has, as far as I can tell, has very little to do with the actual issue. It has a lot to do with sort of the political climate in the U.S. and just the, the latest issue that is going to getting dragged into that. I think you're, you're, you're right. And anyone in the mainstream of business is dealing with it because they know it's the truth and they have to. And they look ahead to 20 years and investments need to go that way. So let's kind of go on. I'll make one interesting point is... We often, you know, have a sense that, you know, real estate investors, opportunistic investors are going to own something for three or four years, and this is not their problem. But they're still underwriting, you know, a five, six, seven-year hold period. They are underwriting the idea that they're going to sell to presumably a core or core-plus buyer because, um, you know, no opportunistic investor wants to sell to another opportunistic investor. So when they sell to the core, core-plus investor, or a REIT, they're doing at least a 10-year discounted cash flow on the asset. So we're talking at least 15 or 20 years of performance of an asset that are going to be inside the valuation of it that are part of this you know, process, this underwriting. And you know, while that may sound like a relatively short um, period of time in the scale of humanity, you know, an awful lot can change. We look at the changes that we've had just in the last couple of years around water, rainfall, volatility of storms, extreme heat. And imagine now we're talking about 15 or 20 years. 15 or 20 years, we'll see significant change in the climate. The change in climate is accelerating rapidly. Um, and our ability to do anything about it in the short term is quite limited. Absolutely. Unquestionable. So let's talk about our industry and we talk about 40%, I'll, I'll mash up two concepts. One is 40% of global emissions come from the built environment. I don't exactly know what that means. I don't know how much of that is addressable by, quote unquote, our industry. Is it all people's single family homes? Is it hovels in in Yugoslavia? You know, there's no Yugoslavia. But in Kosovo, my daughter worked and she was dealing with climate change because people live in cinder block houses with no uh, insulation. Is it What's solvable around it? How big is the problem? If we attack the problem against our, quote unquote, our 40%, maybe it's 20%, can we move the needle? Kind of unpack that a little bit for us, and then we're going to dive into all kinds of subjects around that. Yeah, I think this is a problem. There's no silver bullet. This is There's no one 
um, asset type, there's no one geography, there's no one industry that if we solve that or if it were to disappear or improve um, would make this problem go away. So this is an all of the above yep. uh, solution kind of problem. You know, we talk a lot about commercial real estate and the investment side. They have the ability to impact. But we talk about the occupier side. The occupier side is public sector. It's government. It's firms that own their space, like Google, Facebook, um, Meta, um, all manner of things, manufacturing firms that, you know, own their factories. And all of them need to be doing something. Is there a perfect solution for uh, the cinder block building that has no insulation? No. Are the things that that building can do or the owners or occupiers of that building can do to reduce their impact on climate? Yes. Do we have to do it at scale over millions of you know, smaller homes and you know, residential units? Yes. It's a really challenging issue, but the fact that it's challenging and hard doesn't mean it's one that we should ignore. Mm-hmm. So I want to think about our industry, but maybe we can come back to the places in our industry that you play as examples to make a difference. But let's stick with with psychology for a minute. The word solvability, you got to feel solvable or else you're just not going to bother. And we have the tragedy of the commons, which is why should I bother if the guy next to me is not bothering? But I'm going to be one not to bother. Let them bother because I'll make the I'll make the marginal dollar and be happier because I'm not spending the money on this stuff. Is Think about solvability, think about psychology, and then maybe we can also bring in the ESG thing that's now, uh, I don't want to stay away from politics, but that's now like a dirty word all of a sudden. Hopefully that's a short-term dirty word. But think about solvability, think about psychology. You know, psychology plays a big part. And historically, this, you know, five years ago, our industry, you know, there were relatively few people doing it. Some of them were, I wouldn't say hostile, but they were absolutely uninterested. And the problem of the commons is a really significant one. Our abiding belief is that climate is profitable. And even if your neighbor isn't doing it, you're doing it, you're mitigating the impact of climate, you're integrating technology and best practices simply makes your asset more valuable. Um, it's more resilient. It will use less energy, electric, water, gas, and steam. Um, it may see its insurance costs lower because the risk profile uh, drops as the asset becomes more resilient to certain types of risks. We don't see any reason for people not to do this. Um, there's, some in, there's some friction involved in actually the execution. Uh, it is simply um, harder to do it for a home, certainly, you know, for a commercial firm, you know, to go and solve it, you know, one house at a time when you could do a 300 room hotel, the impact of the 300 room hotel, the single intervention, the single contract, the single sort of um, engagement is simply much more impactful. But it doesn't mean that the other ones, you know, don't make sense um, because it all makes sense. And eventually, you know, whether your view is five or 10 or 15 years, Everybody will be doing this. The question is simply, do you have a first mover advantage? Or can you do something today that will give you an advantage vis-a-vis your neighbor or your competitor that otherwise wouldn't exist? It's interesting. I think businesses have an efficiency of scale and they can afford to hire a person who knows their stuff on the subject that you can't have like as a homeowner. We talked about this on one of the podcasts about single family SFR, being an SFR owner allows you to replace a kitchen for $12,000 instead of for $50,000. Same kitchen for the homeowner. They're just, the amount of inefficiency in getting a contractor to come in and make those decisions is crazy. 
but not for institutions. So we could do it effectively and pave the way. Yeah. And when institutions and larger organizations do it, they bring down the cost. They're bigger buyers, right. the materials, and labor, they help um, create. And it's really, you know, it's a really important, you know, it, one of the exciting things about, as an example, the IRA bill in the U.S. government is the U.S. government committed to be a big buyer of both green concrete and green steel, mm-hmm. which meant that, you know, people in that industry now could build factories and could, could build capacity knowing there was a market on the other side um, that would be their off taker. That's the idea behind the Department of Energy's loan program. You know, just what are the catalysts or what are the impediments early on to scaling? Uh, and can we take them away and can we reduce the, you know, either provide capital, reduce the cost of capital? Can we provide the demand? Can we provide an off taker for materials? And that's really where I think the commercial real estate industry and larger occupiers have a real role to play to catalyze these industries and to catalyze these services and new approaches. Yeah, it makes total sense. So sticking with big picture stuff, one of the things I'm hearing lately is because we're in a real estate recession, quote unquote, and, and I was at a board meeting last week and they said, well, investors don't really care right now. They c- cared last year when we were rolling in the dough, but now everything's tight. So they really don't care about that environmental thing. Maybe they will in three years, but let's just go do deals. And, and I was, I raised my hand and said, sorry, I don't, I don't buy that either from an economic standpoint or a reality standpoint. But has the conversation kind of died down a little bit because of the uh, economy right now? It's a really interesting question, Matt. I've been involved in a a gentle back and forth with a reporter who recently wrote an article that commercial real estate was deprioritizing ESG. And she started the article by citing a panel back in February that I happened to be on. And so I, yeah, it was, I'm quite familiar with the content of the panel. Mm-hmm. And her thesis was that people are more focused on refinancing and leasing, and ergo ESG has been deprioritized. That's really not our experience. And to some extent, this got into the semantics of what the word deprioritize means. Are there things that are more on people's mind at this very moment? Yes, because they need to refinance a building, they've got a loan coming due, tenants are leaving. And it's not so much that ESGs, you know, they've lowered the priority. There's just something else that's moved above it temporarily. And so it really becomes down to the idea, you know, if something moves down the list, just on a ranked list, does that mean it's been deprioritized or simply something else in the moment is, you know, you need to do it today. We're seeing, you know, every one of our firms that we work with hiring more people, having more discussion at investment committee around um, energy, transitional risk, climate risk. We're, think, we're seeing more discussion of uh, climate and sustainability when they go to finance something, when they go to sell it, when they're talking to LPs. There will always be an ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. We often find, you know, on any given day, we are the second most important thing that people want to talk about. But any given day, the number one thing is different. I need to hire somebody. I'm trying to refinance a building. I'm closing. I'm interviewing interns. It doesn't mean that we've been deprioritized. Um, it just means that um, right now we are. There's something else at that moment that they're more focused on. That's a wonderful way to put it. Because when you're facing a loan default, that's your priority. When you haven't had lunch, that's your priority. <laughs> 
<laughs> but this doesn't go away. So I think that's a really strong way to put the subject. Let me ask another question like this. If I think, and again, we're staying big picture because I'm trying to get context around this. When I think of ESG as three initials, I'm always confused about how they got married. And I and they're all important. E is important, S is important, and G is important. But it seems to me that the marriage almost denigrates the long-term nature of the E components that can't disappear and might be embodied in a different human being in an organization to think about that stuff. So combining them actually is noise to me. Any thoughts on that? I can't tell you myself exactly where ESG came from. I wonder if this isn't sort of the acronym equivalent of when you move houses, a box marked other. <laughs> and that just all the things that got left over that don't go into, you know, a specific box, they go into the other box. And the other box happened, just happened along the way to have ES and G. The people that execute ES and G are, are all different. The different parts of the organization are different. Some are cost, some are best practice, some explicitly drive ROI. Um, and I think S and G drive ROI as well, but they're more implicit. Mm-hmm. It's more implied. It's more. It's softer in terms of where the return comes from. The E, the the ROI is explicit from that point of view. It feels like a marriage of convenience, and I think most of us, you know, if we had the ability to go back in time, we would we would talk about these differently. We would sort of uh, group them and aggregate them in a different manner. Yeah, I I get the sense of E, S, and G together mean do good. And, and window washing stuff. And I think of E as throughout the entire investment process, as you said before, and I think that's a great way to look at it. So again, to me, the combination's confusing and maybe why a little bit it got politicized. Yeah, it's, listen, it's clearly unfortunate um, what's happened. I think what you find more than anything else, that firms are addressing ES and G in, in different manners. Right. E has the most you know attention because the E is the has the ability to create more or detract more value than anything else the s i think creates organizational value yeah. but the e creates asset value and it's asset value which is what people are really trading off of whether it drives the fees or the carried interest and promote uh it drives leasing it engages all the stakeholders and i'm sure we'll talk about this but you know the stakeholders today number probably more than a dozen we're in a world five, you know, years ago, perhaps there were, you know, only a couple of stakeholders as we generally think about it. So talk, and th- that was my next question. So talk about the range of stakeholders and how they care. The headline would be that the, the big stakeholders are the European Union and the state of California. But I don't think that's the headline. There's lots of people around the table, all of whom care about it from a different perspective. I'll address the question a little bit differently. Okay. You know, five years ago, if you own uh, an office building, um, you're one stakeholder. And generally, the other stakeholder is the person you signed a lease with. Um, and it was generally a you know, two-stakeholder kind of world. Today, I think it's a very different world. It's still the person you signed the lease with, but it's also their employees. It's their customers. It's their investors, either LPs on the private side, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, pension funds, high net worth family offices, or the public, you know, mutual funds, you know, on the public company on a REIT side, uh, Wellington, a Fidelity, uh, T. Rowe Price. Um, then you've got the debt capital markets, the lender. The lenders care more and more today. But now you've also got 
local officials. You've got the planning people. If you need to pull a um, permit or get a variance, you know, the planning people matter, the elected officials matter, the local, you know, advisory neighborhood committee that typically sit as a sub level below the city council. We need to align with them or you're often not going to get the planning office to even consider your application. Uh, if you don't have the community support, you are seeing, you know, the neighbors have a say. It is a much more complicated world than the one we left five years ago. And it's a world where any one of these stakeholders, if you don't align with their values and address them, can put your project um, on hold. Mm -hmm. Also ask the question about the nature of the you know, equity capital markets. And I think those are you know, quite different. You know, ESG, I think, has its, you would say it has its birth in Europe. But I no longer think, you know, Europe is the only place that cares. In Europe, most of the action is either at the national level or a little bit of the EU supranational level. In Asia, it's primarily the national level. In the United States, in North America, it largely exists not at the federal level, not at the state level, although states do care, but the action is at the city level. That's where you see the regulation. That's where you see uh, transitional risk being created. That's where you see benchmarking. You're seeing green banks at both the city and state level. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. We are the first county in the country to have both benchmarking, but also a green bank. Uh, and our green bank is among the most active and progressive you know, in the United States. And so all of these groups care. They care about um, utilities. They care about commodities. They care about greenhouse gases. They also, you know, are making a distinction between operating carbon and embodied carbon. You know, in Europe, um, the conversation around operating carbon um, was finished five years ago. That's, you know, that's been very clear. They're now very much on body carbon, the carbon associated with building buildings, with the building materials, with the transportation associated with bringing them uh, to a construction site, with reusing um, materials that are on site. That conversation is beginning in the U.S., but we're still mostly having conversation around operating carbon, the carbon that goes into a building, uh, decarbonizing the utilities and the grid, um, so that the electricity that goes into operating a building has been decarbonized. Uh, and Asia is somewhere in between. It's, it's, it's a lot of threads there. What one is, let's pick this one up later, but we'll put a pin on obsolete office buildings. Do you tear them down? Do you rebuild them? What's the carbon dynamic of that as well as the neighborhood dynamic about that? That's really interesting conversation. We, we may get into that today. But also uh, something else that goes, cuts across the real estate business that used to cut across the real estate business episodically, but now is 100%, which is the role of in the investors. Everyone has investors. No one does anything alone anymore. And more of those investors are institutional. And the demands on those institutional investors from their investors are really, really high in this regard. Plus, they're thinking more strategically about the exit from those buildings and not having a building that's stalled and can't be sold 10 years out, five years out. Thoughts about the kind of the investment managers and their role in here in this, and then how that ripples down into the whole business. Yeah, there's, um, there's days uh, of conversation, I think around that, you know, I'm going to lump investors and consultants together. 
um, because they they work in tandem. And in recent years, the number of funds that are in the market has proliferated. So it's an enormous amount of you know funds that are being mm-hmm. considered by consultants or LPs. What we see happening is that LPs, a couple things have happened. One, LPs have started to realize their impact uh, and the important role they can play in transitioning the economy to a low carbon future. And so they're simply demanding more. They're telling uh, their operating partners or GPs, if you will, um, that they need to do better. They're not always articulating precisely what that means or the metrics that they have to meet, but they're simply saying you need to have not only an ESG strategy, but a robust ESG strategy. And if there are 50 funds in the market and 10 of them don't have a robust ESG strategy, the consultants and LPs are not going to be upset if they only, you know, if they don't have to consider 10 funds, they're getting that time back. Mm -hmm. We are seeing a lot of groups coming to us right now. Um, They come with three things. We want to do more. We, you know, basically we want to get ahead of this or, Hey, we're going to the market in the next quarter and we know we don't have a very good ESG strategy. We want to basically make sure that we're articulating to, you know, investors or potential investors, what we're doing, how we do it, um, how we integrate it into, um, you know, everything we do from, you know, buying it, building it, owning it, selling it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, the, that's the big driver. And it's really wonderful to sort of see the capital market playing this role because they didn't have to do a lot of work other than to say, you know, if you want our money, don't even think about coming to us without a robust ESG strategy. Um, And so a lot of investors are trying to figure out what exactly that means. And they're going, you know, very aggressively to make sure they don't get disintermediated from the capital markets because, you know, I've said a number of times, in the next five years, 5% or more of the investors that exist today will be out of business because they did not transition into this new world of ESG and low carbon. Mm-hmm. They ignored it, do it properly, and they will be out of business because they can no longer attract capital. And who is ahead of that curve more? Is it the institutional investors or the insurance companies? I think their paths are each quite different. I think the investors, the large investors, by and large, while they may not have fully settled as to what exactly they're doing or how they're doing it or who they're doing it with, they recognize, as we do, that climate is profitable, mm-hmm. that this idea of you know how much will this cost is really not the right question. You know, If done correctly, the, the question should be, how much value will this create? You know, if I have to spend $5 to get a dollar of OPEX reduction, um, but you know, based on my lease structure, I get the entire impact of that. At a six cap, that dollar becomes $17 of equity. So I spent five, I got 17. I decarbonized, I reduced risk in some form, perhaps a more resilient asset. You know, yes, somebody paid the five, but I ended up getting 17. Did it cost me five or did I get paid the 12, the net 12? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a philosophical um, point, but it's a very important one. The insurance companies are really a, a quite different. They've been taking all their premiums that basically secure and guarantee against various risks, including climate-related risk, and they've been putting that into real estate to secure the counterparty to that risk. Now, imagine you're taking premiums from a whole bunch of people in Florida, and you're investing in real estate in Florida. Mm-hmm. So at the time there's a claim, there's a, a commensurate 
impact on the collateral value that's securing that claim. Mm -hmm. So they're really sensitive to this. I sat next to a woman a number of years ago on a flight that led Allianz's uh, entertainment industry insurance. What was she insuring? She was primarily insuring music festivals, multi-day festivals, who not only potentially have to give the money back to the ticket buyers, uh, right. but that's, you know, they, you know, I bought a hundred, I get a hundred back, but they've already gone out and spent millions of dollars on stages and crews and labor and moving, you know, uh, talent into location. And they may have to eat that. And that's 100% climate related. You know, the number of storms of violence, the storms of danger of storms has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. So that may look like an entertainment division, but that risk is entirely climate related. How bad was climate change back when the Woodstock movie, when Woodstock happened and the movie came out? Because I'm remembering the guys on the gantry. I can almost do a fake voice of from the Woodstock album. I'm totally dating myself, but you may be there too. With the rain, the rain. This is the first time I've realized that perhaps you and I are not exactly the same age. Because I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> You're a kid. I didn't go there. I wasn't there. Okay. <laughs> Woodstock is fun. But but it's interesting because there was a huge rainstorm and they had to shut the thing down, right? And that was the that was the risk there. And I think at that time, you know, people they just kind of played through it. They didn't perceive the risk as the same. But also the storms were the volatility of the storms, the danger of storms, the the embedded water and power, the winds. You know, the storms and hurricanes and typhoons they're simply getting stronger. Uh, because the oceans are getting warmer, and that directly correlates to the danger. And that's where we are right now. It's not just they're increasing in frequency, but the intensity is changing, which means the danger and the cost of storms. Right. My, my question about insurance and mashing up with private equity was probably ill-stated because the real question was of all the stake, of the many stakeholders around the table, one of them is the insurance companies who may not insure your property going forward. And I know that's in California with fire right now. We can't get insured. You just two large insurers leave the market. So here's the interesting thing. You know, five years ago, we used to talk about the cost of insurance. That's no longer the case. We're that's now right. talking about the availability of insurance. You know, whether insurers will leave the market in Florida, whether they'll leave the market in California. The minute you can't get insurance is the minute you can't finance a property. The minute you can't finance the property is the minute that the commercial real estate industry, as we know it, no longer exists. Boom. And firm no longer exists because leverage, you know, essentially is everything to our industry. Boom. It's all there. Okay. More threads of questions that have come up. Quick one here. Uh, one of the things I say on Leading Voices all the time is two of the dirtiest words in the English language are words associated with our industry. One is landlord, one is developer. And as you think about regulatory risk increasing in the business and you think of nimbyism in the business to the degree that those landlords and those developers are green, don't look green, they are green. I think some of the nimbyism and some of the regulatory stuff that's coming down goes away or is softened because we're players and behaving around the table in a way that's aligned with these requirements. I think what you're seeing is a bifurcation of the market. Those investors and developers who align with the community's values, with, align with their climate um, goals uh, and expectations, 
are much more likely to get uh, to see NIMBYism fall, to get their permits faster, um, to see the resistance from the community uh, at a lower level. Those who do not align, who are, get a bad reputation as it relates to construction methods, reuse of materials, will find it harder, if not impossible, to get their buildings approved and their permits uh, in place on a go-forward basis. And so reputation management in the real estate business actually really matters. It matters to investors, which we've talked about a lot. It may also matter to the local planning board and the local neighbors who are going to say yay or nay to stuff. So it's, a, it's again, critically important in more ways than, has more resonance than we think. Reputation always mattered. I think we're finding that it matters even more now. Because again, it's not just the neighbors to let you build the building, but now let's assume the building is now built. It's about tenants wanting to go into your building. It's, a, it's about employees wanting to work, in, work for a company that is in your building. It has a much larger you know, impact than it used to. And in a time where labor markets are very tight, uh, people increasingly want to work for, and this is one of the things that came out of COVID, people want to work for companies that they're proud to say they work for. They want to work for companies that align with their values, that align with the things that are important to them. And they don't want to work for companies who they believe their objectives or um, culture uh, is misaligned with them. Yeah. And we hear with millennials, right, that the values matter. There's article after article after article as millennials and younger people get into the workforce. Values is on their list, which it wasn't when I was a kid. It wasn't for me. Believe me. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Now you see people who, you know, when, you know, looking at a company are, you know, looking at the company's values. They're looking at the political leanings and contributions of their founders and leadership and board. Uh, and they're making decisions about whether that's a company they want to be associated with or not. Yeah, totally. Okay, so you've said a number of times that um, sustainability is profitable, and I want we're going to talk about your background in a few minutes. So we're going to get to that because you come from a place that understands this. But let's use some examples of and you used one a few minutes ago, but make it real on a specific project so we get a sense, okay, we, we hire you, you help us make this profitable, and you've talked to us in the language of numbers. I love that question because I think at the end of the day, you know, we, we bring everything down to the ROI. If we ask you to spend an extra dollar, we're gonna tell you what the ROI is on that dollar. Um, otherwise, we're not gonna ask you to spend that dollar. So the, the example that I've used that I think is really good and illustrative is one from a number of years ago. And it was a project that actually we did for Rubicon America. Rubicon America was an Australian REIT that had been acquired by JP Morgan and Starwood Capital. And one of the assets they owned was the Baltimore FBI field office. Um, so this is essentially the, the, the FBI has about 50 something field offices around the country that basically do all their operations and investigations. This was a building that had been special built, um, purpose built to lease specifications for the government for the FBI in Baltimore, Maryland. And this came up because the owners had a sense they could reduce the operating costs. They had a gross lease structure so that if they reduced the operating costs, they would get the benefits of it. The U.S. government and the FBI through GSA, the U.S. government's uh, real estate arm, 
said that in order for us to even consider the renewal that's coming up, we need to have an energy plan. We need to see you start moving toward that. And we'd have a strong preference for an asset that has an energy star certification, meaning it is in the top quartile of all buildings in the U.S. based on the data set. So a 75 or more. This began as a discussion as how much will it cost us to get a 75? So it began as a cost question. Mm -hmm. What do we have to spend just like leasing commissions and tenant improvements? What do we have to spend to get the tenant to stay? It ended up being a project that created more than $15 per square foot in value with, without impacting any other initiatives in the building. So this building was about 100,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. We did the assessment, we did the engineering, we came up with a project that could be implemented that would save about 100,000 US dollars. The local utility, uh, BGE, Baltimore Gas and Electric, we worked with their rebate and incentive program and were able to secure and identify $100,000 of rebates that would come to the project. In other words, this is money that the building would get, wouldn't have to repay. It was part of the proffers and commitment the utility made to the state of Maryland public. Um, service commission. So there remained $200,000. Now this project, if it was to go forward, would create $100,000 of reduction on operating operating costs, a dollar a square foot. At a six cap, it would create nearly $17 of value. And it would cost about a third, so about $12, $13 of net value. But the question remained, where did that $200,000 of net cost come from? And one of the ideas that we identified, and we worked with the lender, is that potentially the CapEx reserves inside the mortgage would be a source of payment. Now, as you know, lenders, the last thing they want to give up ever is a CapEx reserve. That is sacrosanct. They hold on to that you know, for dear life. But what we help them understand is even though they didn't want to give up the $200,000, if they did it, they would have an asset whose gross value went up $1.7 million. And so by releasing 200, it went up 1.7, a square foot. Their collateral value increased, their loan to value dropped, and they had a better quality loan as a regulated entity. And so yes, CapEx reserve released bad, but increase in asset value good. And they realized that this was a great opportunity for them to actually improve the quality of the loan and invest in the building. So the ownership entity ended up putting a net zero dollars in and ended up with a a value of an asset essentially $1.7 million higher than it was before. The tenant was more comfortable, the building operated better, a lower energy intensity, it got to a 75 Energy Star score, uh, GSA and FBI committed to the renewal. And so this is to us, you know, a really good example of a project where climate was profitable. They reduced the greenhouse gases, they renewed, they got the energy start, they had a building that was worth more and a tenant that uh, added term to their rental. Mm. And across the board, is this a common story, an uncommon story, or most situations when you drill down and bring your expertise to it, do you get towards that kind of outcome? Maybe not as profitable, but still a positive outcome? That is a very common story. And I think what people sort of fail to understand is there's such a, people get so consumed by the idea of how much will something cost, they don't necessarily take the next step and say, well, and how much value will it create? 
Mm -hmm. It's like they're stuck at the semicolon. They don't finish the sentence. How much will this cost semicolon and how much value will it create? They just stop mid-sentence and they can't get themselves to do the next part. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a group calls a number of years ago. Again, U.S. government lease in a multi-tenant building. It was clear they were at the leasing agent negotiating the lease. They said, how much will Energy Star cost? And it wasn't just the cost of certification and the work. But we said this, the way we think about it, nothing. Because, yes, it will cost something to, to get the energy start to make the investment. But when you're done, your building will have a net asset value of $2 million higher than the cost. It will cost about a million to do the work. It'll be worth $3 million based on the EBITDA impact. They struggled to get their heads around that because they kept coming back to, but it's going to cost a million. But your assets were three, <laughs> so net two. And so did you get paid to do it or did it cost you something? And that's a, it's a more philosophical than anything right. else. We've been doing this a long time, and we're very good at, you know, think of the architectural principle of integrated design. If you design for both a financial outcome and a climate outcome at the same time at the outset, mm -hmm. you're able to generate both. But you do it by understanding that you're trying to solve for both at the beginning, and you design the solution from the beginning to achieve both. In every way, we know this in anything we do, the cost to build something in versus the cost to retrofit something or when you're going to replace the boiler, the cost to incrementally get the better boiler that's going to work for the outcome is something you kind of got to do versus, oh, let's just replace all of our boilers today, even if we bought one last year that's outmoded. Yeah, and I think, Matt, you know, that also points out, you know, we're doing more and more work around this idea of, you know, minimizing first cost versus maximizing life cycle. And your examples are really good one because many times you have to, it'll cost you a million dollars to replace a system, like kind one for one, no economic impact. But you could spend, say, a million and a half dollars, uh, have a high performance, say, a centrifugal, you know, chiller, magnetic chiller, and that will save a hundred thousand dollars. The traditional way, we think sort of the, you know, the dumb way of thinking about it as well, that's a 15 year payback. So they spent a million and a half dollars and it saved me a hundred. That's not how we think about it. We think about it, the incremental cost. You had to spend a million, you spent an extra half million. So you spend an extra half million to get a hundred thousand of savings. So it's a five-year payback. And again, you know, most of the groups we work with are sophisticated, they're enlightened, they get that. What they really want to know is, are you sure of your numbers and how fast can you get it done? Um, because they're on the clock, they have a finite period of time to deliver this economic savings, get it into the trailing 12 months before they have a capital event, a sale, a refire, a merger, uh, in order to get the benefit of it. Got it. And so let's change subjects. And I want to think about either examples or companies that are doing this well. And I want to think of how far is and how well we're doing as an industry at the same time. So I want to think about, okay, look, these companies, we don't have to name companies, but maybe we can, are leaders in what leadership means. And then that's only a third of the company. So the other two thirds have a long way to go, but we can get there again, back to the solvability, but how are we doing in a report card towards that solvability? If I'm mashing up the concepts well. Yeah. And you know, if I understand your question, so as I think about companies, I'm thinking about sort of the real estate company right. who's doing it. Yes. And I think almost at this point, nearly everybody is aspiration. 
Some have been doing it a long time and they're well, you know, well down the road on their journey. Some are relatively new to it, but recognize that they need to do something. Um, most companies today have a chief sustainability officer or someone who's the head of ESG, someone who's sitting in that seat. I would say the majority of firms are not trying to do it themselves, um, but are relying on industry partners. They are setting the direction. They are determining what success looks like and what the KPIs were striving toward. But certainly, if you look at the larger firms, they're all deeply committed to this because they do recognize it's both an existential threat to their business model. But if they do it right, it will also drive their fees promote. They simply, you know, have a more valuable business, and that would include, you know, a lot of the larger firms: Blackstone, KKR, Starwood, Bentall, Green Oak, for example, all committed to it, all hiring, all adding to their teams all recognizing that this is very important. Okay, so let's let's drill on that a little bit. Again, we're, we're, we have to be on concepts here because there's, there's so much. For those firms, if those are leaders, how far through their journey of attention are they? Are they at 20%, is Blackstone and Bentall 20% of the way towards the journey they have to follow? And then I'll have a question, then I'll think about the industry. But the leaders, how, how much open areas for them to make a difference still? The leaders have a lot to do. And it's not because they're lagging or they're not committed to it. It's simply the scale. Right. You know, Blackstone's strategy is among the simpler ones. It's a 15% reduction in greenhouse gases within three years of acquisition where they control the operations. 35, 36, 37 words. That is not technically a really difficult thing to do for a single asset. It is extraordinarily difficult to do at scale Mm -hmm. um, when you're talking about portfolios of hundreds and thousands of assets, perhaps in in a a single operating platform. Right. Mile in Europe is thousands of industrial or logistics assets. Uh, Their challenge is one of scale, not one of technology. Smaller firms are still trying to figure out perhaps the technology, you know, but all these firms have resources internally. All of them have outside partners that are firms that are helping them do it. All of them are generally a pretty sophisticated program. And they're thinking about it from the minute they're considering acquisition. So they've now embedded, you know, sustainability ESG at the acquisition level. And the deal teams are thinking about when they actually buy it, doing, you know, ESG or climate related due diligence. Um, of which we do a tremendous amount. Uh, they're thinking about it when they actually now own the assets. So the, the energy plan gets integrated into the business plan right from the start. If there's capital required, it's in the capital stack right from the start. No time is lost. And that's particularly important today because now you have this extra layer of transitional risk. You've got the regulation at the governmental level, mostly at cities, but some countries. And this is new. And so the deal teams don't necessarily know all this. They don't know what local law 97 requires of a building in New York, um, but there's a cost to it. And if they do not address it up front, then there's a de facto carbon tax. And for some of the larger buildings, it could be more than a million dollars a year. Now you take that million dollars, you cap it at four or five for a New York, New York asset. You're talking about a reduction of 20 to $25 million of equity overnight. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. And so understanding what this risk looks like at the beginning and addressing it um, from the beginning becomes really important. It also comes into play when you're talking about financing it. Generally speaking, you are now seeing either a lower cost of capital or higher proceeds or better reserves. 
from assets that have a, a transition plan or a transitioning to a low carbon future uh, because lenders simply want to align their assets and their investments with these types of assets. They also recognize that on a risk-adjusted basis, assets that have an energy plan that are integrating an energy plan simply are lower risk. And so they don't think they're taking the lower risk. They're simply getting the same risk-adjusted return because the risk is lower. Mm -hmm. So if I think of a company with a huge portfolio, we always think of Blackstone because they're the easiest to think about, and you use the example, but they may be 20% through their journey to get this done in the existing portfolio, and the getting it done's not done yet. So they're 20% of the way through thinking through everything that's going to have to happen, both the level of hiring and in the podcast here, I think about young people getting into the real estate business. I think this may be a place to get into in terms of expertise you better have. But that journey has just begun. Some companies are barely started, though. Yeah, I'm going to. So I'm, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. So my first tendency is to restate the question. To That's the a fair to ask. <laughs> so I don't think they're 20 percent through their journey from the point of view of 20 percent knowing what they're going to do. I think you need to bifurcate you know, new acquisitions from existing. So mm -hmm. the first thing you want to do is put in, you know, put in place a program so that everything new, particularly when we're sitting in a moment of slight pause. So everything coming into a portfolio today will have an energy plan, will have transitional risk assessed, will have climate risk assessed. And that, you know, makes sure that everything you're doing right from the start looks like that. The question on your existing portfolio is where to start. Something that will be sold or have a capital event inside the next 12 months, it probably only gets a light touch because it's too soon to have a big impact. And so then you start to think about, we think about markets from what we call a 3D port, uh, perspective, cost of power, rebate potential, and the size of the asset. So we think about, you know, buildings that are in cities that have tremendous transition risk, Boston, New York, Washington, Denver, California, Chicago, places like that, that if you don't do something, uh, not only do you run the risk of a diminution in your EBITDA from fines or penalties, but you're also uh, likely to see reduced demand for your space because the tenancies and the tenants and the uh, the occupiers are much more sophisticated in those markets uh, because they know the assets need to do something and they have their pick. And it takes time. You know, it takes several years to work through a portfolio. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth starting the journey. Uh, the fact that it will take a while and the fact that it's hard doesn't mean you don't do it. As I said at the outset, this is an, an all of the above um, problem. Everything needs to be on the table. Every asset needs to be considered and looked at from a variety of perspectives. Uh, and the fact there may be a better technology tomorrow doesn't mean you should wait. Doesn't mean you should do nothing today. We have the business models to affect change. We have technologies to affect change. We'll have better technologies, but that doesn't mean that we should wait. Yeah. What, one of the themes of the podcast is that institutional real estate is, it, real estate's increasingly institutional. It does seem to me that the public companies, the REITs, or the larger or institutional managers have the benefit on this subject to afford to have the in-house expertise to embed it through their business, also to have you there. Small companies are going to have a harder time climbing that learn learning curve. So size and scale matters. Size, scale, business platform matters here. I think size and scale makes it easier, but I don't 
necessarily think it's, the, it's determinative. Um, there are a lot of smaller developers that are deeply committed to this, and this has been part of what they do for a long period of time. They are in London, they're in the Bay Area, they're in Eastern Europe, they're in parts of Asia. What they have in common is that they basically recognize this was a good business model mm -hmm. uh, and they came to it sooner. You know, I look forward to a day, perhaps in five or 10 years, when we don't have ESG conferences, we don't have ESG panels. It's simply integrated into every single panel we do. So it's, you know, it's integrated into the capital markets panel, it's integrated into the multifamily panel, it's integrated into everything on the hospitality conferences. We don't have a special conference, it's just, it's just a part of every discussion on every topic within the industry. Yep. And, and, Last question before we turn to you, because I want to hear your story because it's relevant because you're one of our gladiators working towards this happening. And so your skill set and your experience really matters to help make this case to have this happen. But how is it? You're, you're a leader at the Urban Land Institute, as am I. We care about our industry. We care about the ripple effects that our leadership can have. What's both what kind of seeing from you a lie a little bit, does it give you hope more optimism and then second thing is how are we doing as an industry i talked about that 20 percent of a journey how does that journey feel to you in terms of the industry saying okay here we are well first i'll you know make a comment about uli you know i'm a global governing trustee of uli i'm one of 12 members of their global sustainability board it would be unimaginable a decade ago that somebody who was focused on climate and ESG and sustainability in the industry would be a global governing trustee. Um, you know, I was the first global governing trustee to have this sort of background. And it was a sea change in many mm -hmm. respects because it's the people started to recognize the importance of this. You now see more and more ESG um, experts and uh, leaders, you know, on the board. Um, they're in Asia now, they're in Europe, they're in the U.S., uh, but when I first went on, I was the only one, mm -hmm. the first. And I think most people saw me more as, you know, someone who used to run Starwoods International Business than uh, a sustainability person, because just that was their orientation. The fastest growing part of ULI today is the sustainability and climate-related services and activities. Uh, that is true in the U.S., that is true in Europe, it is true in Asia. I was at the ULI meeting in Madrid a few weeks ago. A significant amount of the programming, nearly 50%, was specifically on ESG and climate. ULI Europe has created a new program called Sea Change. They will have a conference in uh, October of 2023 in Copenhagen. They're expecting more than 500 people um, to be at this conference. This is a critical issue. There's a difference between creating profit and not creating profit, having tenants and not having tenants. And it gives me a lot of optimism. You know, as an industry, we have a long way to go, but I often say it's about direction first, velocity second. And I think the direction now is quite clear. What we're trying to do is essentially get, you know, the velocity up. We're trying to get acceleration toward the goal, uh, but we are pointed in the right direction as an industry. I don't think there's anybody who um, doesn't see this as a critical issue. Um, some are, you know, adopting it faster than others, but there's nobody who is not sensitive to this as an issue of great importance um, somewhere in their business, whether they're an investor, they're a developer, a financier, they're an architect, they're a builder. Everybody understands that this is important. They got it. So I have a barometer 
of how the industry is changing. You have a party at, at ULI full meeting every year. Maybe you have one in the spring meeting. I don't know. But just the fall meeting. Okay. I went to your party like seven years ago in Dallas. I think it was seven, eight years ago, nine years ago. I don't know when it was. And um, it was a lonely room. I'll tell you, we got to hang out. I think we had a drink. Yeah. We may have had two drinks together because there was no one at your party. Then I went to your party six months ago in Dallas and the room, I, it was in the same room. So it was easy to do this side-by-side -side longitudinal comparison. It was the crowdedest room at ULI and it was all young people and they were all really, really excited. I said, I'm a headhunter. They said, please join us. We need your help because we can't find enough people for our firms. It's, um, it's become the largest um, party at the ULI fall meeting. And I don't, I won't say it's the most coveted invitation, um, but it, it's a coveted invitation. We had five ULI staff members this year whose job was to keep people out who were not invited. Uh, and people were trying to find all kinds of different ways to get in. And the room was completely um, full. Um, there right. was no, you know, we had a waiting, you know, we had people waiting in line. We've never had that before. And we've been doing this since the Chicago meeting, you know, 10 years ago. Um, we'll continue to do it. It's a tremendous opportunity to bring people together. But I think it, it does act as an interesting proxy for what this is. Just the ULI staff associated with climate um, numbers you know, probably isn't you know, it's probably close to 50 people in the United States today. Um, 10 years ago, that was probably one or two. Cool. Okay, so we have attention on our subject. Now, we're going to change the subject totally. Leading Voices started as discussions about people's backgrounds and career history and how they got to where they got to. And we saved like 10 minutes to do this with you, and we're not going to make it through 10 minutes. And for our listeners, they should listen to John Coe's podcast of Icons of Real Estate with you. He did like a three-hour interview. We got a lot about childhood. We got a lot about soccer. So I wanted, So listeners, go for it. And, um, but I did listen to all of it in preparation for this conversation with Brad. Let's start at the beginning briefly, because it's really interesting. You're the child of, of a real estate family. So talk about your dad a little bit and what it was like with the business he had growing up. My father was a mission, um, aligned developer before, you know, mission aligned, you know, was a word. Uh, we moved from Boston to DC. My dad was the housing commissioner at HUD. Uh, revitalized the Section 8 program, and at one point was the largest developer of affordable housing in the United States. And from that, from the very beginning, I started to understand, you know, both the importance of real estate and home, and it provided a sense of security. There was nothing more fundamental than um, than your home, than your residence to raise your family. In college, I actually wrote my thesis around um, Section 8 housing and affordable housing policy, looking at the differences between specifically Boston and Dallas and how they organized their affordable housing programs, what types of amenities um, they were developing, what types of aspects or amenities for the homes were valued by people, uh, and how that impacted different populations. Mm -hmm. And your dad founded CRI, which was then one of the largest syndicators in the company. It turned into Crimi May. I knew your dad a little bit. And I know those businesses well, because I competed with them. Kind of headlines on that. At one point, you know, CRI was the, you know, again, the largest developer of affordable housing in the country. They were doing equity. Kirby May was primarily on the debt side, but still very focused on catalyzing uh, affordable housing and multifamily housing more broadly. Um, and it was really what sparked my initial interest in real estate in the first place. Mm -hmm. And 
unfortunately, Crimi May was one of the victims of the Russian ruble crisis, but they were an early B-piece player and special servicer and crashed with the Russian ruble crisis, I believe. They were probably the first, other than a couple of uh, currency traders, they were the, probably the first large publicly listed, um, I want to say beneficiary. They were the first one impacted um, by the Russian ruble crisis. You were absolutely right. Yeah. So you came from that background. So real estate was an interest. Affordable housing was an interest. And you also had a Ted Lasso moment. So just kind of hit this one for 30 seconds before college, because it's just interesting, given that we're, we've all watched Ted Lasso. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I didn't originally see Ted Lasso. I was watching actually in another podcast sort of webinar that um, Ken Kaplan from Blackstone made a comment about Ted Lasso. And I turned to it and I realized that was my life. So I grew up playing soccer in the Washington area. I was a pretty good goalkeeper and was able to defer my admission to college, but um, had the opportunity to go to Europe and play in the English League, um, where I played for Bristol Rovers, which was then a second division team. But I experienced relegation. Uh, and so this glamorized sort of version of Ted Lasso that made you know relegation look like sort of fun and you know song and dance, that was not my experience. You know, I was playing in a place where a third of the team was Welsh, some were playing for Wales at the international level, the U21 level. And going from the second to the third was a big deal. And some of these guys didn't sign contracts, and they ended up back in the coal mines because Wales still had coal right. mines next to their fathers, their brothers, and their cousins. Wow. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to keep moving. We're going to skip over Harvard phase one, and we're going to go to GMB, JMB. And most of our listeners don't have context for JMB. I'll let you give the context of the headlines of what J.I. and J.M.B. was at the time you were there, the training you got, the colleagues you had, and then the ripples of where J.M.B. went after it left the business. Yeah, so I joined J.M.B. in 1985, you know, when I graduated from college. At the time, J.M.B. was the largest real estate firm in North America. It was the most influential. It was initially raising almost all of its money on a syndicated basis. The Carlisle Funds, it transitioned to J.M.B. Institutional and was raising money primarily from U.S.-based institutions, pension funds, insurance companies. But it was the largest, most prolific deal shop in the country um, by a mile. And it was also influential because it was the place where people left to start some of the most iconic firms in the industry. So John Schreiber and John Cooper left to start Blackstone. Barry Sternlich was at j before he started Starwood Capital. Everyone over the age of 50 at Heitman primarily came from JMB because Heitman acquired JMB's institutional business. Neil Bloom went from JMB to found Walton Street and Rush Street Gaming. Barry Malkin uh, left JMB to found Gem Realty. And there's a myriad of firms that are either directly off of JMB or uh, in turn off of Blackstone. Yep. Uh, Chris Chi at Arrestar, for instance, or Starward and Gene Gorab or Bob Faith and Graystar. It is the mothership uh, of the real estate industry, and the relationships that you know we created there were uh, invaluable. It's interesting. I haven't I thought of the word mothership, but it really is, and tracking all of those folks, and then the relationships that you gained in the crucible of that experience as a very young person is part of who, a huge part of who you are today and what you bring to the table as our goalkeeper because you're keeping our goals towards climate here. 
I like that. I've never really thought of it that way. But, you know, the goalkeeper, I just want to go back to the goalkeeping was really interesting because, you know, goalkeepers, you know, the best goalkeepers are actually do the least work because they organize everything from the back. They set the strategy to get people in the right place. There's, you know, every time someone scores a goal and the goalkeeper does or doesn't do something, it got past 10 people before it got to the goalkeeper. And so, you know, if you organize your business, your strategy, your execution properly, you actually have a, you know, what you do is relatively boring and looks very um, pedantic. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We'll come back to that on the next round of the podcast. And then you got another benefit from Jane because you met your wife and you met your wife, Debbie, there. And so she worked there, too. And also, maybe she shares a last name with one of the initials of JMB. So how does that fit? Yeah, so De Debbie and I met on the 39th floor of the Hancock. She was riding up in elevators. They walked out. They introduced us. Um, she went back to her office and said, I think I just met the guy I'm going to marry. Ah, I love that. And, you know, we both joined out of college. She had graduated from Michigan um, the same year as I graduated from college. And yeah, it was, you know, JMB was formative in so many ways. Um, you know, Debbie is the niece of Judd Malkin, who is one of the founders. He's the M in JMB. You know, Neil Bloom is the B in JMB, uh, who went on to found Walton Street. Both are, remain involved in the business that we've created here today mm -hmm. uh, at JMB um, with Green Gen. And um, it was very formative. As you said, I met my wife there. I learned how real estate worked there. Uh, I understood the whole, you know, whole dollar profits are a lot more important than IRRs. Um, I understood, you know, what gets, how deals work. I learned how to work hard. I learned to work fast. I learned that time matters. What I learned at JMB and in the years I was in Chicago are invaluable to the business we have today and to who I am today. And I think the business you have could not have come from consultants around environmental and climate issues. It had to come from someone who understands investments. So let's, we're going to skip over Harvard Business School, which always makes me happy. And then let's talk about Starwood because you had a, a number of years there, including international. So talk about that briefly, and then we're going to come to the founding of your company. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I met Barry Stern, like in the gym in Harvard when I was in college and he was in business school. And then I went to JMB and a year later he showed up and I'm like, you're the guy from the gym. And, you know, he's, we've remained friends for, you know, a long time. He's one of the investors in the business we have today. Um, my younger son worked for him for five years. I joined Barry to start their international business. And we settled on Asia first because with the um, crisis and the currencies, it looked a lot of, like the RTC days uh, with lots of non-performing debt. Uh, we built up over a four-year period, joint ventures and investments in a team in Asia. I went and did the same thing in Europe. But it's, you know, I honed and learned how real estate worked. Probably the more important thing for the business we have today is we took something basic like real estate and we took it you know, to a lot of different places. And so we took it to different countries with different cultures and um, norms and currencies and tax, different rules. But we, we found a way to do it. And that's really the business that we've built up today. We work in different places. Each one is quite different. But what the commonality is that we're taking global best practices and we're localizing them each and contextualizing them into different markets with different types of investors. But most of our work is for global investors, you know, who basically have assets in lots of places. And so they don't want to figure this out. They want us to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I want it to start globally because when the leaders do it, it can trickle down much easier than just coming up from the grassroots up going up the other way. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you were briefly at McFarland, but then the GFC got in your way. So talk about that for, for 30 seconds. And then I want to hear about the founding of your company and what the intention was, and then the surprises and how you built the business. Yeah. I, I'd known Victor McFarland for, you know, nearly two decades and uh, joined him after I left Starwood. And it was nice because it, instead of traveling around the world, almost every day, it gave me a chance to really learn about the real estate community, you know, back here in Washington. So everything I was doing was in the mid Atlantic and, you know, Victor was doing projects of not only great um, community impact, but great social impact. Uh, and it was a tremendous time to make a difference in my community. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay. So then the GFC comes and you start this business and you start it with three of you. So you and Debbie and Rick, Talk about the f the founding concept of it, the founding it as a trio, and then we've talked so much about your business, but I want to know what kind of team you have to deliver this stuff that's so important. Yeah, so financial crisis comes along. Um, the business that you know historically we've operated in, which was almost completely focused on top line and revenue and rents, lease up market occupancy, uh, collapses. And we start to pivot to the bottom half of the income statement where we frankly had never spent any time. Right. And we recognize energy is much bigger than we ever thought. We recognize that it's controllable, which seems so obvious to us today, sitting in 2023, but 15 years ago was not an obvious thing. And technology become much more powerful. So there's an opportunity to integrate technology into the built environment, drive your cost down, your EBITDA goes up, financial outcome, climate outcome at the same time. It's a pretty good thing. But when we went to look for someone to do it, we weren't looking to start a business. We we're looking to hire someone. Um, we primarily found a lot of consultants who wanted to get paid to tell us what to do, but nobody wanted to implement or execute. A lot of people wanted to sell us their technology, buy my light, my window, my motor, buy my thing, but they couldn't articulate the business case. They didn't understand who they were selling to. And our friends at other real estate and PE shops didn't have a go-to firm. And so we hired, you know, this was really out of necessity. We wanted to hire somebody, didn't see it, saw an opportunity. So we created it um, in 2011, um, about 12 and a half years ago. And the, from the beginning, you know, there was a view that when people said invest in climate, there was no price in carbon in the United States. The response was, eh, no. When you sort of said, hey, we're going to invest in the asset, we're going to reduce your costs, it'll be, you know, it'll increase in value and you'll have these co-benefits of sustainability or resiliency. The answer was like, we're value add investors. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Of course, we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that was really how we sold it. What we recognized from the beginning, if we were going to be focused on not only developing a strategy, but actually executing it, then the team needed, you know, business people. It needed people who understood real estate. It needed engineers, but it also needed project managers. Um, so the first hires, were engineers. Um, one of the first hires was out of the trades uh, who came from a HVAC subcontractor, but understood how buildings work, had been a member of the union, um, got a lot of support from the building engineers that were on site and could actually get projects done, whether it was installing or rigging or estimating. Um, these were things were really critical, but the thing, our special sauce was contextualizing it to understand who the decision makers were and what they wanted. They wanted more fees. They wanted the assets to be worth more. So their promote and carried interest was worth more. They wanted to articulate this so that they could raise more money from various stakeholders. It's interesting. The marriage, you're uniquely, I, this, this business has been created in your image and you're uniquely qualified from two perspectives. And you're, the obvious one, 
There's the obvious one and the less obvious one. The obvious one is you're able to contextualize around investment thesis. So you could take the techies and you could tell people how they can make money and do real estate better doing this. The other thing is through your whole career, and I know you this way, so this is how we got to know each other, but you're well-networked starting from the beginning at JMB, right? And, and, and in, in the gym at Harvard, <laughs> you're a guy who likes people. So you have, a med- you have both the credibility with them because you're an investor and knows the business, but you love to make connections and you love to talk to them and to find out what's going to work for them. And it's that combination of those two skill sets that's really special, special about your story. I think you're right. You know, when we we started this business, there were plenty of people who, you know, came from a softer side of sustainability, a policy side right. or a certification side. You know, I was probably the first to come from the private equity, you know, real estate side. Right. Everything has been done with uh, people we know or introductions or client evangelists. Um, we grow because our clients introduce us to other firms and other groups that need help. Um, we don't cold call, we don't do anything like that. So that part of it's been quite interesting in terms of the journey. And I can't imagine, I, I'm probably not sure I knew how hard this would be when I, you know, when I left the world of Starwood and McFarland uh, to set this up. You know, we had a time where we thought we were really smart. We had a period of time where we were like, oh my gosh, what have we done? And now we do something, we do it very well that the world really needs. I don't know that we've changed. I think the world has changed. I think the world has come to us. We haven't gone to them. Uh, we're doing the same thing we've been doing for a long time. It's just there are a lot of stakeholders, whether, you know, capital markets, cities, yeah. and governments that are really driving this today. Yeah. Now, this is your important work. And you're our goalkeeper, so we're going to keep going there. So we have three quick questions to end this. Question one, is there a surprise on technology on the technology front, tell us one surprise thing that says, oh my God, that's really cool. We can like implement that quickly. Anything really interesting out there? I'll restate it. I think there's something really important that maybe okay. is not the thing perhaps as people think. And to me, that's controls. It's about getting buildings to understand when there's physical occupancy to correlate energy consumption with physical occupancy. So, you know, lights not on, HVAC setting back when there's no students in the classroom, when you're not in your hotel room, when the office building or conference room are not occupied, they go back when it is occupied. The first move for ROI is always going to be controls before we even get to efficient equipment. Mm-hmm. And you're not saying this, but I see this question. So there's a bonus question, measurability. Measurability is really important. I think that data in and of itself perhaps is overstated. I don't think, I think... Owning or acquiring data is really important. I think the more important thing about data is making it actionable. Data on it in and of itself is not the critical piece. It's what data tells you. It's the insights that the data gives you that become actionable. Um, that's the critical piece. Fair deal. Last question on the Ezra Klein show is always three books that you've read. I'm going to tell you the book that I want you to mention, which is the book that I have bought for more people in the last two years than any book I bought people, which is The Ministry of the Future which changed the lens through which I looked at stuff. So maybe you could plug that book a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, you know, Ministry of the Future, you know, was written by a science fiction writer who basically looked at climate, you know, a little bit differently. Clearly a fictionalized view. The premise of it is a heat wave in India that kills, you know, I think 15 or 20 million people in a matter of days. And then the United Nations ultimately creates a new organization that is based in Switzerland uh, to represent the interests of future generations. And 
the premise of it, I think, is quite clear. Those who are most impacted have the least voice. There's an irony that the person who is, say, 95, who may you know pass away in six months, is able to vote for leaders. But the 17-year-old, who will hopefully live for another 60 or 70 years, um, doesn't get a say in who's the leader. Um, there's an irony in that, and I think you know we should all remember that. But what it really does is it, it highlights both how hard this question is and how hard it is to galvanize public support for really tough things, uh, but it also recognizes that no matter how hard something is, you need to just get started. The best time to plant a tree, as my friend you know Martin O'Malley, the former governor of Maryland, used to say, best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. The next best time is today. It's also where you put your lens. We had the same this conversation with Mark Preston from Grosvenor, and he's you know the only three hundred fifty year old real estate company I know. But he says we're going to be here in three hundred fifty years. So if you move the lens from a value add fund that might be a three or five year investment, you probably get away with doing anything you want. But if you're going to look at the lens of we're going to be here in a hundred years, fifty years, two hundred years, then all of a sudden there is no escaping having to address these issues. Yeah, Matt, I'm glad you brought up Mark and Grosvenor. You know, Grosvenor taught me one of the most important lessons, which is, in fact, to take the long-term view. When I ran Starwood Capital in Europe, I was sitting with um, Mark's predecessor, Jeremy Newsom. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, former CEO of Grosvenor, he was also a long-term ULI leader uh, and the global chair of ULI at one point. And I remember sitting in his office many, many years ago, and as we're doing introductions, they say, you know, Starwood Capital is a long-term investor. We have a 10-year fund, and we have two one-year extensions. And he just turns to me with a right, a little bit of a smile. He goes, Brad, that's very, very interesting. We're also a long-term investor. The space we're in right now, we've owned this building for 300 years. Boom. And I just looked, and I said, can we start over? He goes, I think we should. And so, you know, no, you know, there's always a longer term perspective, but perspective does matter. You know, and I think one of the challenges, you know, historically with climate has been this idea that, well, it's not my problem. I'm not going to own this building forever or, you know, it won't happen as quickly. And I think we're realizing when it is happening quicker than we realized, we are also recognizing that along the way, buyers will care. So it is our problem. You know, it used to be people selling buildings didn't want to talk about ESG because they saw it as something that would slow down the process. Now they see it basically, if they don't address it up front in the OM or when they're positioning it or marketing, it will actually um, be detrimental to getting a sale or be getting the price. And so there's been a mind shift, I think. Let me say something. It's If you're doing a value add, don't put obsolete cheap shit in the walls because we're going to own that for a long time as as a society so that obsolete cheap crap is not worth spending money on you get away with it but that's scary i interrupted you i'm sorry no it is scary and i think you know people you know people are very focused now on what goes into a building there's also an increased focus on you know should we be preserving existing buildings and should we be tearing down a building that exists to build a new building because 
the vast majority of carbon is actually in this notion of embodied carbon in the materials. And, you know, we're sitting in 2023. Most of this year and some of last year, there's been a big debate in the city of London on whether or not to give a, um, a permit to basically take down and destroy one of the Regent Street department stores to build a new building. And a lot of discussion about embodied carbon and should you add the density you know, to the existing building and you know, the claims that the floor, the spacing and the layout of the site isn't conducive to it. But it's been a real issue in the city of London as to whether or not you know, new buildings should be allowed when there's a perfectly good existing building on the site. Last question on leading voices is always uh, your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. I think there's a couple, and I'll take a step back, and I think these are just general things, whether it's real estate or not. One is to be passionate about something. I think it's really important to understand how passion feels like, whether it's for sports or dance or music or culture or art, reading. Because once you know what it feels like, then you can sort of Mm. understand how to, to direct it to something different. The other thing is to build knowledge and perhaps most important, you know, I do a call, I do an uh, interview and sit down with every new hire on their first day. And that includes interns. So I've done a couple uh, interns this week and I had a, one of them asked me yesterday, what advice would I give? And I simply said, be curious, mm-hmm. ask questions learn. I want to be learning every day. And I learn from everybody here. Um, the idea that I would know everything is you know, to me you know, just completely absurd. So it's be passionate, it's be curious, and to some extent, be expert in something. Mentors matter. You know, the nature of the people you work with early on, uh, who will be prepared to teach you and le- let you learn. Everyone here, we make huge investments in our team. You know, I've said a number of times, you know, I will invest in everybody here in terms of certifications, courses, memberships. I want a team that everybody in the industry wants to hire. I just want at the end of the day for them to say, thank you. I'm very flattered, but I'm very happy um, at Green Generation. I certainly don't want a team that nobody else would want to hire. That seems to me a, to be a dumb strategy to have bad people that nobody would want to hire. So therefore nobody leaves. We want the best team. We want, you know, people here that everybody wants. We just want them to stay. And that's really incumbent on us. Huge. Two comments. All, all great wisdom. I've never heard anyone say, know what passion looks like. Everyone says, go find your passion. And it might not start at Green Gen. It might start being a goalie, right? Because you learned passion in an early year, at an early age, doing a thing that you were great at. And then you took the knowledge of passion to this thing that you've made your life about. So there's really great wisdom in that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not even, and I'm not even sure it was the goalkeeping that was the passion part. I think it was maybe the organizing to a goal. Right. Wow, interesting. But you knew what passion was. So I had it early in my life because I was both a guitar player and a tennis player. And th- those were my middle names as I was a kid. I wasn't that good at either of them, but I attacked them hugely. And then I attack what I do now all the time. The other thing you said, I will invest in everybody here. I I totally believe in that. And it's a rare comment from a leader. But if you treat your team that way, it's a whole different ballgame. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, passion is basically, you know, you know what passion looks like when basically it's time to go to sleep and you stay up in your room reading a book or playing your guitar 
or writing code or drawing. That's what passion looks like. It's when you make these choices that you know are not necessarily in your short-term interest, but it's it's what you want to do. Uh, and you basically forsake something else for it. Totally true. Hey, Brad, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for what you're doing. It's really important work. I want to check in in five years and see how our report card for the industry is progressing. And so I'm going to be doing this then. You're going to be doing this then. So we'll talk later on. Matt, thank you very much. We, there's one question we didn't cover. And it's a, I have a, it's a question I have for you. You didn't say once how you and I are where we met. <laughs> <laughs> it's been in the back of my mind. So, w well, we, we know this, but I, what I find interesting is the route we fo followed to know that we knew each other. So this is embarrassing, but we were in a hot tub together at the Post Ranch Inn right on the coast of Big Sur. And so that's a privileged place to be. And it was a privileged conversation because we did what we call Jewish geography and we found that we went to similar camps as kids. I think that was camps to real estate in DC to we know each other. Is that wasn't that the trend of the track of the the conversation? Remember more than anything else, we met in a hot tub. Okay, we remembered it. We met met in a hot tub, and then. But I find it fascinating to figure out yeah. how you know each other. Hey, I bothered. I don't usually talk to the people in the hot tub <laughs> because it's a bit awkward. But we did. And then establishing the connections, really interesting. Gets back to what we talked about before. We're interviewing a potential hire right now, and one of my team asked me yesterday, how did I meet her? And I said, oh, I met her grandfather in a hot tub. <laughs> Connecting with his granddaughter. He goes, I'm a climate denier. I don't believe in anything you're doing, but my granddaughter, she's an environmental scientist in college, and I think she should know you. So I said, yeah, I met her grandfather in a hot tub. Okay, so, well, you have a lot of hot tub stories. This was my only one, but thank you for asking. It's going to be on the show. This was great. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them and add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.